Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I am joined with my favorite ghoul friend Jessica. Wingapo. Wingapo. And today we are going to be talking about the Perrin family, a.k.a. the story behind The Conjuring, which is a movie I know that Jessica got terrified from, and it's a movie I love. (laughs) I love that, like, everyone was like, let's watch The Conjuring, and then no one watched it with me. It's like three people. (laughs) I was one of them. (laughs) Yeah, and then it cut out, like, dipped out on my, I couldn't watch it anymore, so, like, I had to, like, FaceTime Tara just to see the end of it. I totally forgot that happened. (laughs) This was like a year ago, but yes. Still scarred (laughs) over here. Uh, But (laughs) if you are new here, hello and welcome. If you are a returning spookster, welcome back. We appreciate having all of you here listening today. If you would like to hang out with us on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Everything is in the show notes in the link tree. Or if you search Three Spooked Girls, you will find us. And we also have an awesome Facebook group that a lot goes down in. We've had quite a few people join recently and sad that they missed out on our secret Satan gift exchange. But if you want to participate in our secret Santa, please go over there. We are keeping it in there and it worked really well the way we're doing it versus a big thing like Elfster. So if you want to come hang out, join that, head over there. We also are having a Krampus Day virtual party holiday hangout thing going on on December 5th. We're going to have some games. We're going to have a themed drink, some prizes, all kinds of fun stuff. It is benefiting Toys for Tots. Your $5 admission, everything we get for that will be donated over. We are so excited. So if you want to hang out with us, pop in, say hi. Check that out in the link tree as well or our socials. We have it on Eventbrite for you. Mm-hmm. And and if you would like to support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash three spooked girls or again, Linktree, because everything revolving us is in that little link. <laughs> Tried to make it easy for you guys. For as little as a dollar, you get one bonus episode a month. And from $2, you get three bonus episodes a month. $5 starts you video content so you can see what we look like because we just realized the other day there may be people out there listening to us right now that have no clue what we look like. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. That was a comment. Like, I was like, wow. Okay. I like it. Yeah. I don't I don't know why I was like, everyone knows who, what we look like. I mean, like everybody in the Facebook group knows what we look like because we interact in there. Or on Instagram. Or on Instagram. Yeah. Because I post our selfies. But like, you know, you don't see every single post we do and you may be new and I don't know. I just thought it was funny. So yes, if you want to, I guess, see what we look like, video content. <laughs> But no, if you're at five and up, that gives you at that point four bonus episodes a month because I also have a series that's video only called Haunted Grounds and I give you guys a haunted object and then also a caffeinated beverage suggestion of the month. It's amazing. You guys really need Thank If you, you haven't, you guys should check it out. I have opened my eyes to different coffees out there. Yay. I'm very <laughs> much like the cold brew in a bottle type girl and Tara has introduced me to other things. I try. I try. We also do live streams. And of course, there's swag involved for that in higher tiers. And in current time, we record a little bit before these go up. In current time, I have a couple of the spooky enamel pins left. So if you would like one of those and you are not a patron yet, if you join at our Fiverr Higher tier, those are going into your welcome swag as well. But before we get into our promo break, what is the drink this week? So since we are talking conjuring and there is in that story a witch, I decided to go with a very fun cocktail that is called the Hocus Pocus Cocktail. Ooh. I'm still coming off Halloween and Hocus Pocus was huge this year. Can I say something about still being on Halloween? Mm-hmm. In real time, it's barely November. The it's second. the second. And so, of course, our Halloween decorations are still up. Uh-huh. Inside and outside, because I have, like, inflatables and stuff. Our next-door neighbor, apparently yesterday, I didn't go outside yesterday, took down all our Halloween stuff and has now started putting Christmas stuff up. So when we went outside earlier <laughs> today, we were both, me and Matt, were like, what the fuck? He's like, can I take a picture and be like, there's these kind of people and then us? And I was like, no, don't post their stuff on the internet. The nightmare before Christmas in housing, though. That was the thing. Their inflatable was Jack Skellington. I'm like, oh, you should have left it up. It would work. But... No, they have their Christmas stuff up, which I will say is very cute. But I was just laughing because it was like half Christmas, half Halloween. <laughs> I like it. I made a promise that I was going to start decorating for Christmas on November 1st. But then I wasn't home because we were celebrating my nephew's birthday. Mm -hmm. And social distancing, I want to point that out there, being very socially conscious and social distancing because he's two. Yeah. Well, I'm going to do it. It's going to be like this weekend. But I got to clean my house first. Yeah. It's been like... My husband and I have taken these like little jaunts. So we come home and like his wakeboard is in the middle of my living room and I haven't unpacked. <laughs> and it's like, oh, there's three suitcases I haven't unpacked. I need to get my shit together. <laughs> it's okay. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I was not say you could tell us the drink now. <laughs> oh, yes. The drink. So I did the Hocus Pocus cocktail and it has pineapple juice, OJ, gold rum, apple brandy, blue curacao. <laughs> <laughs> silver cake shimmer and you know, mix it together and then of course the instructions are going to be on socials tomorrow so you want to definitely check it out to get that and it's really cool looking mm -hmm. i don't know i just feel like i don't want halloween to be over but i also am like not prepared for november yeah it seems like 2020 has taken forever but at the same time went fast and then october went like triple time fast i feel like october lasted a week if that <laughs> right I feel like the week before Halloween took 
fucking forever to get there, right? Mm-hmm. But then it was like the rest of the month was like, oh, okay, we're in hyperspeed. And I'm like, I don't like this anymore. I know, goodness. But with that, we are going to take a quick promo break and we will be right back. Hello, Twisted Humans. This is the podcast where two best friends chat true crime and have a glass or two of wine. I'm Alicia. And I'm Caitlin. And this is Twisted and Uncorked. So join us every week for Casual Tuesdays where we release a new episode. We are now available on all platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Rate, review, and subscribe. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Well, welcome back, guys. Like I said, we are going to be talking about the true story behind The Conjuring House today. Jessica's going to handle some background and interesting history info for us, and then I'm going to come at you with the haunts a little later. That is correct. (laughs) So this is the real story behind the scary-ass movie y'all made me watch, and I'm still bitter. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. So, okay, the land itself, of course, is millions of years old because it's the land. But as far as we know it, as in like modern times, it actually goes back to the 1680s. It was surveyed by a man by the name of John Smith. And it's a pre-colonial house. And it was an 18th century farmhouse located in now Harrisville, Rhode Island. Now it's known as like the Conjuring House. But you know, for a couple hundred years, it was, <laughs> it was known as the Arnold Estate. Please note that this is a private residence. Yeah. It recently sold in 2019 to a new couple whose names are Corey and Jennifer Heinzen. And they plan to like restore it and turn it into like a tourist attraction. Okay. Okay. However, the previous owner before this couple, Nancy, when 2013 happened and the movie came out, people would just show up in this lady's house, like at the house, like in the middle of the night with flashlights. And I'm like, okay, ghost hunters, stop being fucking rude. Like that's ridiculous. Like you have to respect private property. And she owned it for like ever. So bad juju people. But as of right now, it still stands as a private residence. They probably were well on the way of like renovating it, but then like COVID happened. So the house is located at 1677 Round Top Road. And I know, don't go, but here's the address in (laughs) Harrisville, Rhode Island. And they, the new couple, Corey and Jennifer, have now deemed the place, they call it the farm on Round Top Road. Okay. I like it. Yeah. And it was built in 1736. That is 40 years before the Declaration of Independence was written. That's crazy. That's 40. That's 40 years. Yeah. Like I said earlier, it was surveyed in 1680 for the, the land to probably like break it up so that it could be sold. And the house was owned by the same family for eight generations. So, like, you know that there was, like, a ton of shit that happened during that eight generations. Yeah. So there was some kind of famous things happen while it was in Arnold ownership. Some tragedies happened on the property. Now, when you look at the time frame in which they're recording this, they're talking about this from like the 1700s to like the 1970s. That's a long ass time. Mm -hmm. So like it's 300 plus years. So just like put that into your nugget when I read this, because if you think about it, three, if you look at it from that time frame, this might not seem as much. But if you were just to be like, wow, one property, all this shit happening. 
So, I don't know her first name, but Mrs. John Arnold, supposedly, and I say supposedly with all the enthusiasm of supposedly should carry, she hung herself in the barn and she was 93. There was also an unsolved case on the property, and it was of a rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl by the name of Prunitz Arnold, which is really sad. Like I said, it was never solved. And I mean, one of the things that I did hear a lot is that this area had a lot of, I don't say like transient, like how we think transient. It was more of like people just seasonally living in different areas because this is Rhode Island. It's cold. People traveled a little bit. And also, I forgot to mention, it's 200 plus acres. You could easily walk onto this property and not know it was somebody's property. Yeah. So because of that, because there were so many people that they think moved across the land, there were also some other suicides by hanging, some by poisoning. On two different occasions, people drowned in the creek that ran through the property. Mysteriously, four men froze to death on the property. Mm. Right? I was like, how how you be freezing? There was also a little boy by the name of Johnny Arnold, and he supposedly hung himself in the attic. So there were some tragic things that happened. However, it should be noted that none of this can be confirmed. One of the owners that we're going to talk about in a second actually did the research. Her name is Carolyn, and she did the research and she came up with this stuff. But like, it's public record. But again, we don't know if like these four men that walked onto the property, like if something weird happened or if they just like got out of the elements and got exposed and we don't know. And drownings, I feel like, were a thing back then. I mean, I played the Oregon Trail and like a little fucking dude drowned all the time. (laughs) So the Arnold family owned it for eight generations and then we're going to skip to 1970 when it was purchased by a family that basically found their dream home. And their family, their names were the Perrin family and they're going to be the stars of this show. So they moved from Providence, Rhode Island. They had been looking for this house. They'd saved up all this money and they were really excited and they found this house and all this acreage and so it's roger and carolyn parent and they have five daughters they got a shit ton of kids <laughs> so because they have all of these kids they're like our girls can grow up in this area it's 200 acres they can run around it's gonna be fucking phenomenal right well Daryl, will tell you why it wasn't so phenomenal but <laughs> so they bought the house in the winter of like 1970. And Carolyn was like, you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to move my daughters to a new home and be unpacking in the middle of Christmas. Makes sense. But at the same time, they moved into the house. Well, at this point in time, like, there was no real, like, sinistery thing happening in the history that could be told, which we'll talk about a little later. So the house is two stories, and it, depending on what source you look at, it either has 10 rooms or 14 rooms. And I don't mean bedrooms, because I love when you watch, like, YouTube videos of people, and they're like, it had 14 rooms. Like, who the hell was sleeping at this house? It's like, no, it's 14 rooms, as in, like, the whole house is 14 rooms. Because this was back in the day where you had like specific rooms for specific purposes. So like, you know, your pantry was probably really big because you had to store a ton of food. They lived in rural Rhode Island. You had like a sewing room or, you know, a sitting room, a parlor, those type (laughs) of things. So you had all of these different rooms. And then from what I can tell, there was probably only about four bedrooms because obviously Roger and Carolyn shared a room. Their oldest daughter, Andrea 
or Andrea. I don't know how she says it. I can't recall. She had her own room. And then the next two children, Nancy and Christine, shared a room. And then the two youngest, Cindy and April, shared a room. So this wonderful family moved in in January of 1971. And they moved into their perfect dream house. Like I said earlier, they put all of their money into this shit. And they would live in this house for nine years. So there's going to be another character that comes in a little later during Tara's part. But I wanted to be able to give you her story slash background slash debunked background. (laughs) It's a little all over the place. And her name is Bathsheba Sherman, or as her birth name was, Bathsheba Thayer. She was born, according to the conjuring story, let's start there, according to that story, she was born in 1812. She claimed to be related to Marytown Eastie, a Salem witch trial victim that was executed in 1692. The story, according to the conjuring, is When she was 51 years old, I'm like, what the fuck? Okay. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about the likelihood of this story being accurate. When she was 51 years old in 1863, Bathsheba married a rich farmer by the name of Judson Sherman. And she gave birth to a child. And then one week later, Judson caught her stabbing the baby in the back of the neck with a knitting needle to sacrifice the baby to Satan. And then once she was caught... She ran outside, climbed to the top of a tree, yelled, I love Satan, (laughs) cursed the land, whoever owned it, and then hung herself and committed suicide. I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at her dying. I'm just laughing at the I love Satan. I love Satan. (laughs) I mean, I can't say that with like in a serious tone because I'm like, no, Satan's listening. I blame it. No, I don't like you. So like I said, the baby being stabbed with the knitting needle is going to come and play a role later on Tara's going to talk about. So it's like it connects. Now the historical telling of this. It is correct that she was born in 1812 and that she married Judson Sherman when she was 32 on March 10th, 1844. That's a little old. I mean, that's how old I was when I got married, but I feel like today that's pretty standard. But in like 1844, like she should have been like... A grandma. Yeah. And it is rumored that she gave birth to four children, three of which died. And I listen to a lot of people talk about this. And like, that is so weird. Not really. It's like they lived in a rural area. They didn't know what the fuck SIDS was. And kids got sick and like, you know, died really easy. Infant mortality rate was really high during that time. And she was 32, which during that time was like considered an advanced age to have a child. But actually, she was 37 when she had her son because she did have one child that lived. And his name was Herbert L. Sherman. And he was born in March of 1849. And she was 37 years old. And they don't know when the other children were born, but they do know or they think the other three children were born sometime after that. And this, they would have confirmed this through census records, because that's how you would know, because of the census records. So it was said during this time that Bathsheba lived that she was a witch. And she was a witch because she was beautiful. And I'm pretty sure this is like the equivalent of to people just talking shit. Because <laughs> I've seen like a picture they think it's her. And she's like really pretty. And I think the local town women got together and were like, she is too pretty. No, she has to be a witch because like 
No one is that pretty. Oh, my God. Yeah, probably. (laughs) And she must have made a deal with the devil for her beauty. Because according to lore as well, when she hung herself from that tree that she declared that she loved Satan from, she turned to stone. And that was the price that paid, which also made me think of Hocus Pocus. Mm, They do, too. Yeah. When they die, they turn to stone. So I was like, oh, this all kind of comes together. It's checking out, but like at the same time, not checking out. Yeah. And I think another reason why this whole like she turned to stone rumor came is because she did die at the age of 73 in 1885. They said that she had paralysis, but like before she actually passed away, her body was in paralysis. So people were like, oh my God, did you see her? Her body was like stone. That confirms that she made a pact with the devil. But they think now like doctors with modern medicine have looked back and been like, I think she had a stroke. Oh, that's sad. Of course, there is zero proof of this except for like the paralysis thing. I think it's documented. And really what connects. Bathsheba to the Arnold estate is that her husband's farm was next door. So what you're telling me is if the story is correct, she woke up, killed her infant, her weak old infant child with a knitting needle, ran outside, but didn't just run outside, but like ran over to the neighbor's house, which we don't know like what part they lived on. Like, let's say that it's the farthest and she ran 200 acres. She's on devil loving energy. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Also, wouldn't you think her husband would have been able to catch her? Right, right. Somebody. Or the Arnolds would be like, why is Bathsheba Sherman in our tree screeching about the devil? And where did she get the rope? A lot of holes. Holes falling apart, people of Harrisville, Rhode Island in the 1800s. So basically, after she died, people gossiped even more about her. And there is another part of the story, basically... What kind of gave validity to this story is at one point in time, she had the care of a child. I'm unsure if it was like whose child, where the child came from. I don't know. But she was in a care of a child and the child died. And when they looked at the child, they found a hole in the back of the child's neck. And so they were like, fucking Bathsheba stabbed the baby. And she was accused of it, but then never went to court. Okay. Because, you know, it's the 1800s and we discussed this with Lizzie Borden. They didn't really put women away for murder. Yeah. And that was like when she was younger and then she lived to be 73. So really the only only way that she's actually thought of brought into this case is by our favorite paranormal investigators. And I say that with such contempt. Is Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah, I was going to be like, we've never talked about them. <laughs> we haven't. So I thought I would give you a little history, like muy piquito. So Ed, I didn't know this. Ed's actual name is Edwin Warren Miney. I see why you got rid of that last name. <laughs> I'm sure rhyming was not fun for you. Um, And he was born September 7th, 1926. And he died August 23rd of 2006. Lorraine was Lorraine Rita Warren. And she was born January 31st, 1927, and she died last year on April 18th. Yeah. So April 18th, 2019, she old. Mm-hmm. The couple were slash are revered as the, like, real first American paranormal investigators that, like, mainstreamed it, if that makes sense. And they were also authors, and they worked on a lot of big-ass cases, 
quote unquote, like Amityville and Enfield Poltergeist, which are like some big ass cases. They also owned Annabelle. If you watched the movie The Conjuring, you know, because Annabelle is in it. They made this outrageous claim that they investigated over 10,000 cases in their 30-year history or their 30-year career. That is bullshit because that means they they investigated one case per week. They're not fucking criminal minds or bones or any of that other shit where it's like we wrap up a case in a week and we're home by the weekend. Like that's not who they were, especially because like this case, they were on it for a while. So the real quote unquote fake number, and I do say fake number because I do think this is exaggerated as well, is actually around 4,000 cases, which is a much more manageable number. But they think that it was a lot lower and that a lot of the cases they're like, we helped with this case. People are like, was that a thing? Or they counted it like if someone called and said, hey, I think my house is haunted. And they were like, oh, tell us about it. And they like looked at pictures and they're like, oh, no, it's just your pipes rattle because this thing is loose. They counted that as the the case they investigated. (laughs) To play devil's advocate, that is looking into it, but then debunking it. Right. But like when you say like I looked at 10,000 cases, that's a lot. I'm just pulling a you and telling you. Well, I don't like it when it's me, not me. (laughs) Um, So Ed's part of this duo is he was a self-taught and self-proclaimed demonologist, which a demonologist is a person who studies demons or the beliefs about demons. And Lorraine was, or she professed to be clairvoyant and she was a light trance medium. What does that mean? I don't fucking know. (laughs) I looked into it and then I went down this path of like things about like what you should know about light. Not even, it wasn't even like light trance. So I don't even know if she was like, if the word light is descriptive, like she was only in it a little bit, like she dabbled. Or if it was like she needed the light to do it because there's this whole thing where people think you have to be in the dark to do these things. So maybe she's like, no, I can do it in the light. Hmm, Interesting. Okay. If someone knows, let us know. (laughs) Yeah, we will find out at a later date. (laughs) (laughs) So the two of them, Scooby-Doo themselves, a company together and became a team. And in 1952, they founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, or NESPR, which is the oldest ghost hunting group in New England. So that's actually pretty cool. It's still there. It's still kicking. Um, And according to NESPR, they use medical doctors, researchers, police officers, nurses, college students, and members of the clergy to conduct interviews. So they try to give it some validity. Like, I'll give them that. Like, they're not just out there like, ooh, I think your your closet's haunted. Mm -mm. They do try to debunk it first. And there have been skeptics over the years, and we'll probably do an episode on these two at some point. So I'm not going to go into too much detail, but basically said that a lot of their research doesn't hold up. And then there are two specific skeptics, which I didn't get their names, but they basically (laughs) said that they looked into Ed and Lorraine and what they did for Amityville and then the Schneidker family haunting, which is the haunting in Connecticut. And they basically completely debunked that they made it the fuck up. So these two. Yeah, I mean, when we've asked for topic recommendations and people have said their names, somebody literally put like the Warrens. Spoilers. They're trash. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, whatever. <laughs> it's one of those things where as Tara and I like we're paranormal researchers and the fact that like we research paranormal cases We're not like paranormal investigators. So 
when it, you look into it, like we we try to be objective and look at it like, could this be true? And there were a lot of cases that these two were in charge of. I mean, basically the whole Conjuring series is just their side of the stories and not the families who went through it. So it's very much told from their perspective. And they made a shit ton of money off of it. I mean, not Ed, because they were made after his time. But I do, I will say that people in the community, I've heard that they find that Ed was less credible than Lorraine. That they really do think that she was clairvoyant and that she was a medium. And that Ed was just more of like a, look at me! Mm, gotcha, gotcha. Because, I mean, I do believe that people should study demons. And I do believe that demons are real. We just did the demon house in, like, Oklahoma, which was the coolest moment ever. Is when that guy tweeted us and was like, this was a good episode. And both Tara and I were like, I just died and went to, like, Twitter heaven. Oh, man, yeah. That was so crazy. Right? So basically, if you were the parents, you basically move into this house. And within five minutes, some stuff is happening. But what I thought was really interesting is when they got the keys to the house, the previous owners said to them, we're just going to warn you, you should keep the lights on. So before I hand it over to Tara, we are going to take a quick little break to hear about some more Manscaped stuff. We'll be back in just a minute. Support for Three Spooked Girls comes from Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your man's family jewels. The Lawnmower 3.0 comes inside their hot new Perfect Package 3.0, which makes the perfect gift for this holiday season. It's literally everything your man needs to keep him trimmed, cut-free, and smelling nice down there. Speaking of smelling nice, let's be real for a second. We've all smelled stinky balls before. Mm-hmm. And I'm not about that life. Jessica's not about that life. Mm-mm. And that's why we're thankful for their Crop Preserver and the Crop Reviver. These products keep balls from sweating, smelling, and sticking so your man and you can remain happy and fresh men you put deodorant on your armpits so why wouldn't you put deodorant on the smelliest part of your body Mm -hmm. also these formulations are all vegan cruelty free dye free sulfate free and paraben free so you know his manhood is in good hands Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SPOOKEDGIRLS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code SPOOKEDGIRLS. Naughty or nice, this is the number one gift on Santa's list. Hop on this trending sled today. We're back. And I'm going to hand it over to Tara, and she's going to tell us about the haunts that are in this house. Yes. So like before our little break, Jessica said that when they got handed the keys, they were like, sleep with the lights on, but supposedly did not tell them anything else. And that was it. And it was like, your problem now. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Rude. So that's fun. That's fun. And like Jessica said, pretty much paranormal activity began as soon as they got in the house. And it wasn't scary stuff right away like you would think. So it would be more subtle stuff like a broom would be moved into a different spot or certain places would be swept up that weren't. Some sounds of like scraping against the tea kettle that was in the kitchen when no one was there. And with the cleaning and the brooming and stuff, there'd be little piles of dirt in the kitchen floor, just like chilling, like ready to be, you know, picked up with the, what do you call it? Dust pan. The dust pan type of thing. 
Yes, I couldn't. I was like, I can see it. I can't think what it's called. Jesus. I hate that. (laughs) And the girls would notice also as well that their toys would be moved. Initially, whoever it happened to in that instance, they would just think one of their sisters was playing a joke on them or taking their toy from themselves type of situation. And from an interview with Cindy, who's obviously one of the daughters, she said, quote, things would either be moved all around in a different position than how I had left them or they would be all shoved up underneath the bed. And I would go to my sisters. Of course, you would go to your sisters and ask, hey, what did you do to my toys? And they'd say, nothing. Why would I mess with your toys, Cindy? End quote. And so most of the time, the girls just shrugged it off. You know, it was just like, oh, okay, my sisters are just being jerks, whatever. Right. (laughs) And after this, eventually some more spooky stuff started to happen. And Cindy said that she decided she would share her toys with the kids who were visiting her in her bedroom and enjoyed playing with her toys. That's really nice. Yeah. Creepy as fuck, but super nice. It is, but it's also noted that they actually, at in the early days, enjoyed the company of these spirits and just thought of it as extra company around the house and things like that. One article was like, even babysitters. I'm like, oh, God, where, where are the parents? Okay. And there's a couple other entities besides the main one I'm going to get to in a bit. One was described as a man with a crooked smile, and he was said to appear in the corner of their room and just kind of watching over them while they played. And they said that they began to refer to him as Manny. Along with this, there would be activity of furniture moving, beds would levitate, and doors would slam by themselves. (laughs) Got some moody-ass ghosts in this house. Literally. But this one's a little less creepy for you. It was kind of sweet. There's one instance when Cynthia said that, quote, when we first moved into the house for the first two months, there was a woman that came and kissed me every night on the forehead that I thought was my mother. And then Andrea would go on to say, mom smelled like ivory soap and this spirit smelled like flowers and fruit, end quote. So they knew it obviously wasn't their mom, but it's like it wasn't creeping them out or anything like that at this point. So they're just like, oh, someone telling us good night. That's nice. <laughs> It's like if the movie Peter Pan didn't have a dog. Right. Had a ghost. It's a nana. At this point, yes. I just think it's so cute because it's like, could you imagine for years, like, not feeling like you had a purpose and then all of a sudden five little girls moved into this house and then you got to, like, tuck them in every night and they weren't scared of you. They were happy you were there. I know, right? So, like I said, you know, the family saw most of these spirits as harmless and, you know, wouldn't really think about it. They're like, yeah, we'd go out and do whatever for the day and we didn't worry about it. It was just a part of our lives at that point. But there would be a turn. Some of these spirits in this house weren't so nice. Or perhaps it's the theory that the entity was actually starting to show its true self because, you know, gain trust and then fucking possess you. I don't know. There's a main entity that's focused on in the movie and a huge part of this story, and we'll get to her in a minute. But some other things to note real quick that happened in the house that were kind of scary. The house did, like in the movie, had this cellar basement with dirt floor, and this creeped the girls out. They did not like it. They were not about it. They never went down there. And honestly, the only one who really did go down there was 
was Roger, and he only went down there when he had a reason to, which usually was that, like, the heating equipment would start failing, quote, mysteriously and things like that. And since that's where it was stored, he had to go fix it. But he said that when he was down there, he would get a cold, stinking presence behind him. So he didn't really like being down there. So I'm assuming whenever he had to fix it, he's like, okay, done. We're leaving. Get the fuck out. Right. Mm -mm. I'm not playing this game, ghosty ghost. Right. And another creepy thing that revolved around Roger was that it was noted that he would, when he would open the front door, he would be kind of enveloped in this, quote, putrefying smell. So that sucks (laughs) because it's your fucking front door. Right. Like, welcome home. The smell of rotting flesh. Right. And then speaking of smells, there was more. It was said that after a certain point, every morning at 5.15, early AF, the family would be awakened by the smell of rotting flesh, but could never figure out where the fuck it was coming from. So when I heard this, I was like, Ghosty has night toots. (laughs) (laughs) Or morning toots, I guess. (laughs) Like, oh, good morning toots. Like, oh, sorry. Permanent gas. (laughs) But we're going to enter somebody Jessica introduced us to, Bathsheba, and the family believed, quote, quote, that she was the person, thing, whichever you want to call her, behind the creepy things that I just talked about and some other things that we're going to get into. Something to know up front is that this spirit was said to show different sides of herself, depending on who was interacting with her. To Carolyn the mom slash wife, she fucking hated her. That's the easiest way to say that. She did. She hated her. But to Roger, she, um, all I can think of is that scary succubus entity from like Scary Movie 2. I don't know if you remember. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't know what it was called. And it was only in it for like two seconds. Anyway, but basically she would come off as sweet or other articles were like she would give off innuendos and uh, basically hit on him and shit like that. I thought of like... The Roanoke American Horror Story. Oh, I never watched that season. Oh, there's like this like witchy type primal character. Yeah. And she like falls in love with the guy and the guy actually goes back for her. And then his wife, Shelby, kills him because she's mad because she caught her ex-husband or her soon-to-be ex-husband or whatever he is doing it with the ghosty bitch. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I didn't watch that one. But when I was reading about her, about this entity and like stuff, Andrea, she has books and stuff. What she said made total sense. She had said that, quote, whoever the spirit was, she perceived herself to be the mistress of the house and she resented the competition my mother posed for that position, end quote. So, of course, obviously, no brainer. She wanted to get rid of Carolyn so she could have the house and Roger and everything because she thought that was supposed to be hers. She's a bitch to her. (laughs) No other way to put it. No. And, you know, if she it was the instance where the entity like doesn't realize she's dead or something and thinks like, oh, this is my family. What's this woman doing swooping in type of thing? But Carolyn talks about how uh, this entity like tormented her on the regular because, yes, she did fucking hate her. (laughs) 
But more activity to add to the creep factor was one day Cindy told Andrea that a disembodied voice was telling her that there was seven bodies buried in the wall. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, immediately, like today, if someone was like, there are seven bodies in the walls of your apartment, I'd be like, "Uh, can we get an x-ray? Break it in. So we can see where these seven bodies are. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. Please show us because if so, we're getting the fuck out. (laughs) Correct. And if you've seen the movie, you guys probably remember the hide and clap game. That is essentially hide and seek with the blindfolds. The seeker would tell them to clap and they would clap and then all of that. So in the movie, there's a scene where the mom is doing it and this entity is like kind of fucking with her and there's a creepy wardrobe and all of that. But in real life... There was actually something scary that happened. So Cindy was like one of the people hiding and she decided to go out to the woodshed and she thought this would be a great place to hide out because, you know, it's separate from the house and a little bit more to look through. And there was a wood box. There was a wood storage box and there was no lock on it or anything. So she's like, "Okay, cool. I can like you can pop the lid open super easy. Right. So she climbs inside it. And she's waiting for her sister, that one of them that was it, to come and find her. And a good little while goes by and she's like, okay, I guess I hid good enough that they're not going to find me. So she's like, it's getting hot in here. And so she's going to get out, but she cannot get out. And she starts panicking because it feels like it's either locked somehow or someone's pushing on it. It's like it will not budge. And it's just a solid wood box. There's no holes. There's no slats. Nothing. So not good. Not good. So, of course, she becomes like super panicked and freaked out and stuff. And then about 20 minutes or so go by and then her sisters finally do find her. And they said that they just like pulled it off like super easy, like normal. And she was just sitting there covered in sweat and crying and all this stuff. And of course, like she told them what happened and they're just like, what the fuck? Like poor, poor Cindy. I feel so bad. So another thing to kind of compare with the movie and the uh, true story was that in the film, we see Carolyn, she actually goes to like Lorraine and Ed when they are speaking at a college or something like that and tells them to come out to the house type of situation. But that's not what happened. So in real life, it wasn't her at all. She actually didn't really want to talk to anybody about it. So there was a family friend of theirs named Barbara that actually knew what was going on. And she was like, oh, God, this is fucking terrifying. We need to try to do something. And she reached out to them because they were near the air. They were, you know, not too far away. They were working on a case in Connecticut at the time. So Barbara got in her car, drove over there told them what happened and they were like, of course, we'll come take a look. Let's go see what's going on and see if we can help. So they come. When they got there, we have two different reactions. So Carolyn, she was described as being ecstatic and excited and kind of relieved to have someone to help with what's going on because, like I said, she didn't really talk about it too much at this time. She just didn't want to talk about it because, of course, even though Roger is seeing all these things, he's like, nope, it's fine. Things are fine. The house is fine. (laughs) Well, I mean, the ghost in the house liked him. Right. So he, on the other hand, was said to be annoyed with them showing up and just over it. Not, Not about it. Not about it at all. So once Lorraine was there, Carolyn 
of course, would talk to her about her encounters with uh, her homegirl, Bathsheba, and all of that. Carolyn would talk about how she was visited at night by a woman in gray whose head was hanging at her side, which reminded me of Hill House, <laughs> the Netflix show at that point, because her ne- with her neck all fucked. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. And that apparently this entity told her to leave or she would be driven out with, quote, doom and gloom. So she tried to tell her. She tried to tell her to leave. (laughs) Just her. Just Carolyn, by the way. (laughs) We don't want you here. Everyone else welcome, but not you. Yeah, pretty much. And something to note that prior to all of this, Carolyn did not know the entity's identity. And this is when the information would come to light because there was an instance where she had been, quote, mysteriously stabbed in her leg. And this was said to instantly remind Lorraine of Bathsheba. And she had said that Bathsheba had taken her knitting needles to the grave and was using them in hauntings. So that also will depend on, like, all the different stories we heard on what happened to her and when she died that Jessica told us earlier. Because I'm like, okay, so was she clutching them when she jumped out of the tree screaming she loved the devil? Like, please tell me. (laughs) I just love, like, an image of, like, a a woman. It's, like, according to the story, she's, like, 51. So, like, picture a 51-year-old woman clutching two, like, silver knitting needles and is like, I love Satan! (laughs) Now, the question is, would she put them in an X? Would she put them like her arms in a V? Would she just hold them? What do you think? Let me know. So like Jessica said, they would live in this house for almost a decade. So they lived there for nine years. And this whole Warren visiting them was not a one-time thing. They went there multiple times. And the most kind of memorable part of the movie, because it's really creepy, is the exorcism at like towards the end. Now in real life... This went a little differently, too. I don't think anybody's really surprised at this point because that's kind of a running theme we're having here. (laughs) Right. I just think that Ed and Lorraine remembered things differently than other people. Possibly, yes. We, uh, We do have some interesting stuff from Andrea that I'll get into, too, with this. So, okay. In the movie, they did an exorcism and Ed was the one doing it, right? Well, the real Ed and Lorraine claimed that they did not do an exorcism at all because they would never, ever try because they weren't qualified because neither of them were a Catholic priest. And the fact that Carolyn and Roger were not Catholic. Right. So what they said happened was they said that they would end up having a seance down in the basement and they supposedly kicked the girls up upstairs and told them not to come down, blah, blah, blah. But Andrea said she actually snuck down there and saw something super terrifying. She said, quote, I thought I was going to pass out. My mother began to speak a language not of this world and in a voice not her own. Her chair levitated and she was thrown across the room, end quote, which that's pretty universal when talking about the recounts of that incident saying that she levitated and she was speaking in tongues and things like that, which I think is why a lot of people are like, um, that's an exorcism. I'm just gonna say that is like why people think that type of thing or a possession. I mean, right, exactly. But I think like I think the stereotype is put those two together a lot, you know, so I can understand why people think that in real life it was an exorcism, not a seance. Makes sense. Which a seance, you're reaching out and talking to spirits so a possession can very easily happen (laughs) 
I don't know. I just am like, I mean, I would I, I take their word that it was a seance, not an exorcism. Like, why would they they say all of these crazy things? Like if they had done an exorcism, <laughs> I feel like they would have been like, we did it. <laughs> or the reason they didn't, because it could be an exorcism, but they didn't admit it. That kind of could have possibly got them in trouble of some sort, maybe. I don't know. Right. Because it's not even just like you have to be a Catholic priest. Like you have to be a Catholic priest who has like a specialty in this. It can't just be any priest. So if Ed and Lorraine Warren are out there doing exorcisms, that's like a huge like fuck you to the Catholic Church. And I don't know if you know this, but the Catholic Church has a mighty mighty long reach and would probably have shut their little research projects down real fast because people die in exorcisms. Of, like, exhaustion and heart failure and shit like that. And if you're not paying attention to the signs, you could hurt someone. So I honestly think that the Catholic Church should handle this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, also, from my understanding, it's a whole process to even get an approval to have the exorcism on the person, too. So it's not just like, oh, call Father Bob up and be like, hey, come do this exorcism. Like, it's a lot more than that. (laughs) Father Bob. Oh, God. So after the seance concluded, it was said that Roger was fucking pissed and he kicked the Warrens out of the house. I mean, wouldn't you? Well, right, because you're like, you just fuck things up. Because that's what they said. That's what the whole family said. That It's not like the movie where it's like, oh, everything's okay. Mommy's back now. Uh, no, they said that things got worse and they had worse activity, you know, when this happened. Can I just say, because I've only seen the movie once when we watched it, and I knew at the end of the movie was just like, they fixed it. I was like, fine. And then I started doing the research and they're like, no, this happened and shit got so much worse. I was like, Fucking movies are lying to me and I'm not okay now. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. But yeah, and they ended up living in the house until 1980 because of their financial situation and the real estate market and things like that. But I didn't research into that. Jessica did when she was doing the actual factual stuff on the house. So I'll let her tell you guys about that real quick. Yes, because when anytime you watch anything on this topic where people are discussing it, like how Tara and I are, they ask the question, like, why the fuck didn't they move? And I'm like, there was this huge recession during the 1970s. And I was like, well, what caused it? Well, there was an oil crisis because basically there was like no oil. And there was a collapse of the Bretton Woods system, which was a monetary management established basically in 1944, like towards the end of World War II, that was basically US, Canada, Western Europe, Australia and Japan. And basically it monitored and um, there was like an agreement on the exchange rate for gold was. So it kind of kept everything pretty like standard, which is why we have those like glory years because everything was like in place. Well, then we had Richard Nixon who came in and in 1971, he basically was like, "Um, we're leaving this. And it was called the Nixon shock. And basically he removed that and basically destabled our economic system. And from in the 1970s, the unemployment rate was between 4.9 as the lowest and 8.2, which was the highest, which is not the worst in U.S. history, but it's kind of up there. And I think what people realize is they're like, well, that was only like two years from 1973 to 1975. But really think about the recession we just went through and the fact that right now 
people are starting to buying houses and stuff like that because it takes people a minute to feel comfortable. So even if like Roger and Carolyn put a for sale sign on their house in the end of 1975 and were like, let's sell this bitch, you had to have a buyer. And I can see buying a 200 acre like farm would be a huge risk for people when there was like wage freezes and like shit like that and people weren't getting paid and there was like gas rations where like you couldn't go anywhere. So it probably took to the 80s for people to feel comfortable enough to buy that kind of a house. (laughs) Probably. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, like while they still owned it, the older girls, a couple of them, like, you know, they got old enough to be adults and they're like, we got the fuck out of there and didn't look back. Bye. (laughs) Right. Like, don't blame you. I would have done the same fucking thing. And what was interesting was some articles were like, and then when they finally got rid of it in the 80s, everything just stopped. But then other articles were like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I just kind of laughed when I read that because I was like, that's that's wrong. There was, of course, activity, according to the Perrin family, that some of the tenants that were there left screaming and running for their lives. And there was a man who moved in to start doing some restoration on the house. And when like because they when they sold it and basically they said he left, quote, screaming without his car, without his tools, without his clothing. He never went back to the house. And consequently, the people who owned it, the adjacent landowners, so like their, quote, neighbors, never moved in and it sat vacant four years. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. You're just bringing down the whole neighborhood here, people. Literally. And then it would, before the couple that bought it in 2019, the owner that had it for a really long time was Nancy Sutcliffe, and she purchased the home in 1987. And she actually lived there. Like Jessica said, there's this whole fucking thing with people just like trying to show up at her fucking house. So she said from when she bought it up until when Tap showed up, So like, you know, late 80s, 90s, and a little bit more. She said she never experienced anything. So she falls into the camp of this is all some bullshit. (laughs) And taps came. And when they actually did get some activity and whatnot, Nancy was there and she was actually shocked. She was just like, what the fuck? Nothing ever happened to me before. (laughs) Like, what? So, which brings up two interesting theories about this house. Either that the entity, for some reason, was mainly connected to the Perrin family, Mm -hmm. or the fact that uh, she's picky about who she wants to fuck around with and these other entities want to fuck around with. So, maybe they liked Nancy and they're like, we'll just leave her alone. We don't know. We don't know. Well, because, like, I know that the tenants, like, the people who either rented or bought the house between 1980 and 1987 when Nancy bought it, they had activity. And that's why there was, like, turnover. Yeah. Because there was a few, I think there was, like, three owners. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just interesting that she just kind of led a normal life, you know? Yeah, because the Perrin family moved to Georgia and they were like, we're fucking free at last. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they're like, no, just kidding. (laughs) Shit followed. (laughs) (laughs) So there's the theory that it like followed them. It's connected to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quite possibly. The kids said, I think in one of the interviews that Andrea did, she said that one of her sisters was having weird things happen before they even moved into the house. And, you know, Andrea has made quite a career out of her childhood. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. And with that, if it is attached to them, they uh, they had some fun stuff happen. Fun, I say fun, but they had activity happen while filming the movie, actually, because, you know, they like they were there. Andrea was there and stuff. And Carolyn, who probably should not have been there. <laughs> right. It's like, mm, what did I tell you? Right. Get the fuck out. <laughs> I waited nine years and then you left. And now you're back. What the fuck? <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Could you imagine being that entity like, thought we settled this fucking 20 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> this is my house. So you can read up on this for like all the activity that happened during then and like what weird stuff happened with like actors and whatnot. But the one thing I do want to mention to kind of like give us a close here that was like, damn, Entity wants to fucking kill her. Apparently, there was times when like this weird wind would happen through the house or through set and whatnot. And there's like no wind outside. So it was like, oh, it's Bathsheba. Like she's doing it. Jesus Christ. It's like, okay. And apparently it started blowing like cameras over, people over. And it was like causing this like one camera to like wheel down and knock someone out, like completely knock them over. Well, one of those people that ended up doing this to was Carolyn. (laughs) And her fall was so fucking serious. She had to be hospitalized due to a broken hip. Oh, I'm I feel bad that I laugh now, but also at the same time, it's like, are you serious? It took you nine years to escape this entity. Why would you go like what kind of money were they like, here, here's some money. It'd have to be a lot because I'd be like, uh, can I just zoom in? Right. Can we FaceTime this bitch? Literally, it's 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 insane. So, yes. So she would be like, this was Bathsheba and uh, obviously shouldn't want me there. No shit, Carolyn. No shit. Sure, I told you this in the fucking 70s. Come on. Right. So, oh, Jesus. I'm like, please have learned your lesson and stay the fuck away. But yeah, I am really interested to see what the couple is going to do with it in terms of transitioning it from a private property to, you know, somewhere to go ghost hunt and stuff. I know, like, obviously there's tons of places like Rolling Hills Asylum, you know, other places like that that you can go to and do ghost hunts. So I'm sure they'll probably add that in. Lizzie Borden House, you can stay the night. Right. Which is also for sale, too, right now. (laughs) Right. I mean, and I'm wondering if that couple is like, fuck, we bought the wrong house. We should have bought the Borden house. Because that that would have been what was going through my head. And who knows? And honestly, would you like to be quarantined with her? (laughs) Oh, God. I would hope they bought that house as an investment and still have a family home somewhere else. Um, I don't think they did. Oh, no. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah, I don't think they did. I'd have to check. I'm pretty sure they live in it, which is fine. Well, hopefully she's nice to them. She seemed to be nice to Nancy, so. Well, you also have to look at it like Nancy didn't have a husband. Did Nancy have a husband? It didn't. It just talked about her. Yeah, it just talked about her. Right. So maybe it's a that's a thing. But like also, has anyone checked on them during quarantine? If you live near Harrisville, can someone please check on them? Make sure they're okay. (laughs) (laughs) We would like to make sure that they're okay. Corey and Jennifer, we want you to be fine. (laughs) Right? Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, honestly, if you like horror and you haven't seen the movie somehow, like, it's an entertaining watch if you like horror. If you do not like Jessica, then you're going to want to skip it. It's a truly horrifying movie for me. Like, it scared me. Yeah. And I think, like, the real story, too, is in its own way, very creepy. And it did honestly remind me of The Bell Witch, but in reverse, like instead of hating the husband, hated the Mm -hmm. wife. So also made me happy and kind of like laugh with that. And 
like just now, for some reason, just now, I totally got your Scary Movie 2 reference because I was like, I don't fucking remember Scary Movie 2. I'm trying to put it together in my head. It's the <laughs> What Lies Beneath one. Yeah, 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 yeah. How did I not get that? It's okay. It's okay. For some reason, like when I was younger, I watched that one the most for some reason. I think because I got it in like the $5 bin at Walmart. <laughs> I think it was a, like that one was a good one. Obviously, you probably liked the first one because it was like Scream. Yeah. But then like the second one was just like really funny. Yeah. But anyways, so that is going to wrap us up here for today. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode on the true story behind The Conjuring House. If you have any suggestions on other movies we should do the true story behind, let us know. We are happy to add those to the list because they're always really fun to research, I feel. True. Like really interesting. But with that, we will go ahead and sign off and we will see you on Thursday for another episode. Bye, guys. Bye. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.